Welcome to the second episode of Life Until Death. I'm Nicole. I'm Rachel. And we are here to have a little chat with you about mental health, about death, about a really bad man. Bad man. He was an asshole, man. I know. And I can say that because I'm not treating him. That was the thing. Well, no one's treating him anymore. He's dead. Exactly. So we can talk ill about him all we want. All of the ill of the dead. All of it. Exactly. I was saying to, you know, my partner the other day when I was doing this research, because I was doing a lot of heavy research, like watching these Moore's Murders documentaries and stuff. We're talking about Ian Brady, in case you didn't know. I'm just talking about some random dead asshole. Yeah. And I was reading articles about the implications of treating, you know, people that are terrorists or murderers and how you still have to treat them and everything. And I, I remember saying to my partner, Hey, you know, I'm not treating Ian Brady. He's not my patient. I can call him a cunt all I want. (laughs) So here we are. Yeah. Well, I have treated people that have been murderers and rapists and I still couldn't do that. Exactly. Yeah. That's a thing. Before we get into all of that, how are you, Rachel? Oh, do we have to? Yeah, now no, I'm feeling a bit meh. Bit meh. Not, not, not as upbeat as I was last week. I think it's just sort of, you know, when you just sit with your own thoughts and you're exactly the same with me. You're on, you're on the move constantly and it's to avoid your own thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> if I do everything all at once, I don't know how to think about how horribly fucked up I am. Um, yeah, so that happened. Um, yeah lots going on in the world i will avoid talking about how i'm feeling by moving swiftly on to current events how are you feeling Um, i'm doing okay um can't complain i am probably moving within the next few weeks you are moving five minutes away from me as well you lucky thing i know i'm really excited I've heard uh, lots of great things about the area and... And your neighbours, obviously. Obviously, yeah. My neighbour's five minutes down the road. Um, <laughs> actually, when I was when we went to look at the house, um, um, some... I think I told you about this. Some older guy, like, approached us and warned us against moving there. <laughs> Because, oh, God, you did say about that. That was quite funny. And he, yeah, he was talking about how it was becoming like a drug den, and like there were all kinds of people moving in from like the mental health services, and his neighbors were keeping him up at like three a.m., slamming doors constantly, and we'd have to be crazy to live there. And I'm in like, fairness, oh, it's an upper middle class town. It's not exactly the fucking Bronx, is it? Exactly you know um, it's not like you're moving to harlem you're moving to a place where you have shops that are literally called snob um (laughs) there is a a shop called snob on the high street um that's the kind of place you're moving to yeah well i mean when i lived in the states i didn't really live anywhere horrible um or even pretty bad i've always been in slightly decent neighborhoods um i have yeah, good for me. Good for my parents, I guess, because it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> if it was my money, I would be in the biggest, you know, crap hole imaginable, probably. Um, but Look at how well we've done for ourselves. Yeah, 
<laughs> I'm gonna go, Independence. I'm gonna go have a shopping spree at Snob now. Yeah, all of that student loan money, it's just, it's really hitting right home now, isn't it? Yeah, thanks, thank guys. You. you know, I've been to bad neighborhoods, obviously, um, once looking for strip club. Um, and I've been into East St. Louis, for example, which is not a great area. And Why were you looking for a strip club? Oh, ex-boyfriends, you know how it is. Um, oh, you're trying to be that liberated girlfriend? I was uh, that liberated girlfriend. I didn't have to try. Thank you very much. <laughs> but anyway. Okay. Yep. I've seen some you know, I've seen what bad neighborhoods look like. I've walked around Baltimore and not the greatest places. That was looking for Edgar Allan Poe's house, not a strip club. And fuck Baltimore. I lived in Western Supermare for 20 years. Christ. You don't get much more ghetto than Bourneville. I guess so. I guess. Damn. I would Straight like to out of Western. I'd like to declare right now my that I am privileged <laughs> and I didn't actually live in any of these places. But anyway, so when I, but when I hear people talk about towns, very sleepy towns here in this area being dangerous or certain streets being dangerous, I'm just like, oh, please give me a freaking break. This is not South Central LA. Like, it's fine. You know, I had exactly the same. I moved over to Glastonbury a few years ago and there was issues they had these people called the benchers which are basically the people that liked to have a drink in the daytime alcoholic light um and sit on the benches and just chat shit and there was just this huge upheaval in glastonbury because it was i don't know fucking with their chi or something and yeah they were like oh this outrage just this this horrific sort of how dare you how dare you do this to my town and like glastonbury is the most zen place in the world you walk down the high street someone smiles at you they don't want to stab you for crack money you know it's all good like it's nothing like western at all you walk down western someone smiles at you they're about to shank you in the face so (laughs) it's there's nothing imposing about it it's it's oh people are just too fucking pampered man it's i've only ever been to the pier on western so i cannot comment about shanking well, the pier that unceremoniously burnt down, not due to a scam to do with insurance fraud at all. But did it burn down again? It did. Not, not again, sorry. No, it's only burnt oh. down once, but there's been lots of buildings that's burned down in Western that have just been, you know, How convenience odd. to burn down. Oh, I didn't get planning permission. <laughs> did, oh, the arson, <laughs> did the arson stop after you moved away? <laughs> it did. Wow, what a mystery. I really love my hometown. <laughs> and I would have gotten away with it too if it, if wasn't. it wasn't for you pesky fucking American. <laughs> We're all dogged like investigators. So yeah, I'm seeing that. Just stop yeah. unearthing my horrible secrets and we'll be fine. We'll get on great. So speaking of America, um, shit is not too great over there right now. No, no, stuff is not good. Let's no. talk about that. I think we need to talk about that because that's that's staring in everyone's faces right now. It's all over the internet. It's all people are talking about, and rightly so. Exactly. It's. I mean, it's something that keeps you know the whole Black Lives Matter movement. These protests. It's something we've seen time and time again. the The situation is not getting any better, and you know, it's it's really you read these stories online about how 
black people in America have been dealing with the police and it's just, it's heartbreaking. You know, you hear about kids getting shot and, and this, just the systematic fear that black people live in just getting pulled over, just never knowing if any encounter with the police is going to be your final moments. Basically it's something that I, you know, as somebody who looks white, I, don't have that fear and I didn't have that fear when I lived in the States and I can't I can't imagine and I can only listen to what people have to say about it and try to do my best to help or mm. no I think it, it's like I've been teaching my little boy you know like don't be afraid of the police you go and tell the police if someone hurts you you know telling my mum off if she says oh we'll make the policeman eat your tea and it's like oh. In America, black kids should legitimately be scared of law enforcement officers. You know, I'd imagine parents that are teaching their kids to stay the fuck away from police officers. Not, you know, like you were, you were genuinely at threat of, you know, harm coming to you if you come into, if you come into interaction with these people. And that's not the way it should be. No, it's, I can't imagine having to tell my kid, you know, how to if the police stop you for any reason, even if you've done absolutely nothing wrong, how to act so you don't get shot. No. And I, we're speaking from a pretty white privileged perspective. We're, we're in our little box hey, of stuff. It's not like we're going to... Whitey. <laughs> I literally blend in with my wall. I couldn't get whiter. And that's, that's not my fault. It's just the way I've rolled. <laughs> but it's, you know, we're we're speaking from like quite a boxed off perspective because we're not at threat here. Well, and we're speaking from the UK. So yeah. I'll say that right now, you know, it's, we're a bit removed from the whole situation. Our police and, you know, there are, there is racism in our, in all of our systems, in mm. our police force, in our, even in our medical, in the medical field, there's just systematic prejudices and racism um, I don't think it's on the scale that it is in the US, but it's still there. It's um, definitely still there. I was doing a fair bit of research for this before we came online. And there was, I used to teach in psychiatric hospitals, in secure hospitals, as a physical interventions instructor, which is a really fancy way of t- saying that I used to teach people how to restrain patients. Um, and when I was teaching, we used to use the example of a report that came out called Big Black and Dangerous. And it was brought out in 93 and it was in response to, to the death of Orville Blackwood, who was a patient in Broadmoor. And there was two other Afro-Caribbean patients that died there as well. And they were basically saying that black minority people have a higher rate of police involvement in their admissions. They're more likely to be detained, more likely to receive secure care. And even things like when it comes to down to diagnosis, even more likely to be diagnosed with things like schizophrenia or the more severe mental illnesses. And just the implications of there being threat there because of your ethnicity or the way that you culturally present yourself. And over the two decades later, there still doesn't seem to be a huge amount of change there. There's still a lot of narrative that goes along round with, you know, they'll take me to hospital. This is where they'll force me to have injections. But even when I I feel better, people still see me as bad. You know, these are the reports that people are coming out with. 
And there's just this huge mistrust that people have about mental health services within ethnic backgrounds because people don't feel respected. They don't feel culturally respected. They don't, they don't feel understood in that way. And I'm, I'm saying this as a person that's witnessed that, not obviously as someone who's gone through that myself, but I've seen it and people feel intimidated. If you have a big guy that's black that comes onto the ward, suddenly you know like the men on the ward feel the need to occasionally feel like they need to protect you know women on the ward etc when realistically there might not be a threat there it's just people's perceptions and it really grips my shit sorry exactly. i just went off on a tangent there <laughs> you see that in in the non-mental health side of medicine as well um there are so many unconscious prejudices that play out every day i think mm. the when you see it with the maternal mortality rate um, black women are dis disproportionately uh represented there you see it with a sort of systematic downplaying of pain in black people and minorities um you see it with the emergency services occasionally um you know people are told to look for cyanosis for example when we you know when somebody's not getting enough oxygen well that's really hard to do with a black person so signs that they are in medical danger are often missed mm. um, there's even for things like examining a woman after a rape um, some medical professionals find it difficult to distinguish trauma on a black woman versus a white woman just because of their skin color um and yeah, exactly the same when we're talking about um looking for positional asphyxia because the chap that died in broadmoor hospital he died from positional asphyxia because he was restrained when he was sat down and he was bent forward mm -hmm. and that position reduces your oxygen intake by up to 53 percent. so that's a huge huge amount and in that position you you know, if you're teaching a bunch of people that are white on a course, sometimes the association of actually teaching someone, you know, someone may go a different skin colour if they are naturally a different skin colour. It's, it's something that needs to be spoken about. It's people don't well, click onto the fact that you need to acknowledge that there is going to be notable physical presentations which are going to be different. Exactly. You see white people being represented in disproportionately in, for example, clinical medicine trials. Mm. So you'll have, you'll have trials where there aren't enough ethnic minorities. And so when this drug is rolled out, it will, sure, it works fine on white people, but you might find that an Asian population, the dose will have to be different. The side effects will be more severe and this hasn't been represented in clinical trials. The problem is, and I, when I try to bring up, I have occasionally brought up, you know, sort of institutionalized racism and internalized prejudices with, you know, my nursing cohort even. Mm. And I think people kind of don't want to hear it. They assume because they don't see overt racism and prejudice that there isn't a problem. And nobody wants to admit that they have internalized prejudices, but everybody, everybody does. You can try to be the best you can be, but it's just, 
it's something that's ingrained and it's in the system and it's not just a matter of making things equal. I think people think, well, if we treat all patients the same, then we're being, we're not being prejudiced, but you do have to recognize the differences and know them. And Mm. that's where the, that's where the problem is. You can't treat every patient the same because there are fundamental differences. Like we've just talked about in just a matter of somebody's skin color, what shade of skin they are. You have to look for different things and people need to be trained to know that. Absolutely. That's, that's why I was always so happy when I was working with a diverse staff team because sometimes you're not the right person to deal with it like as a woman if I was dealing with a gentleman that was Muslim and he had a really aggressive physical presentation and that needed to be managed by restraint there's no nice way of dressing that up if he was presenting so dangerously that he needed to be kept safe by holding him to keep him safe I wouldn't be the person to do that because culturally that'd be really really insensitive um I'm not saying there is a right way of doing it. It's a fucking horrible situation to be in. No one wants to do it. But sometimes there's things that you have to respect as a culture or as an ethnicity. And the more diversity that you have in your mental health wards, mental health settings, the more chances are there's going to be someone there that you can build a rapport with or it's going to be the best person to do the job at the time. Because it's just that relatability, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And all of this is coming on the heels of actually two pretty damning reports that have come out recently about um, black and ethnic minorities and COVID Mm. in this country. Um, One being that, well, we've got medical and police here. So one being that the risk of death is higher for ethnic minorities um, than it is for white people in, in the UK from COVID-19. There's a disproportionate sort of amount of Black, Asian, and Caribbean ethnicities dying. I was going to ask you how you feel about that, actually, because I saw a post on Facebook, obviously the most credible source of information in the world, and it was from our local NHS authority. Oh, are you going to tell me about the comments? (laughs) Oh, the comments. Honest to God. It was... Literally, why should these people be receiving special treatment? This is racism, blah, blah, blah. What about the white people that die of COVID? Well, fuck, man. It was like, there are differences culturally, whether whether it's a biological or a cultural risk factor, which is increasing because this person has a different lifestyle, a different, you know, whatever else. These risks are evidenced. And what's wrong with trying to keep people safe that are at risk? Exactly. I just don't fucking get it. It's, oh. Well, the, the reports I've seen with the, with the results of this, and it's pretty damning. I think the people of Bangladeshi ethnicity, for example, have twice the risk of death than people of white British. I mean, we're talking mm. 10 to 50% higher risk of death for black and Asian minorities, which is huge. And to be fair, it could be a biological thing. It could also be um, a sort of deprivation thing as well, because mm. as we know, there are health inequalities, people who <clears throat> there's a higher proportion of people of black, of sorry, of black and ethnic minorities living in the more deprived areas of the country. And it's about the healthcare they receive. It's about any comorbidities they have. 
people who are in more deprived areas will, are more likely to have other chronic conditions. Um, so there's a whole reason why this could be, but it's still significant statistics that need further study, especially when you consider how many healthcare workers are black and ethnic minorities and need, might need extra protection if it's the case. And like I said, like I was talking about the drug trials, there are fundamental differences in different people from different ethnicities mm. in how drugs work and how diseases work in their bodies, basically. And I saw that I saw that post on Facebook that the NHS had put out. It's ridiculous. I mean, it, I just read that and it was like watching a bunch of children throw their toys out of a pram. Oh, it's just like it, the whole, what about white, where's the white history month? You mean like, it's like every, the 11 months of the rest of the year? Yeah, come on, like, shit on my culture. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel exactly. so terrible because Harrods has to fucking shut down during lockdown. It's just, oh, I know. honestly, it's just the entitlement of it that really, really irritates me. It's like yeah. people that turn around and say, oh, why don't we have a, a straight pride march? It's like, because you haven't gone three years of fucking oppression, you asshole. Because you march down the street every day secure oh. the knowledge that your relationship is okay. Like, and that, you know, nobody's going to shit on you for it. That's your march. Um, <laughs> people. I just, people, I can't people. stand it because it's the same thing. It's people looking in the face of science and applying their own stupid opinions it's just their own narrative isn't it it's it's why why don't i get the best for everything why if someone else has been noticed for getting more why aren't i getting extra it's just a spoiled fucking child mentality the other article i was looking at was um another report that came out very recently um saying that black and ethnic minority people are fined more than what the white population under coronavirus laws so although B-A-M-E, I will say, I guess. That's not really a shortening. I'd rather just say Black and ethnic minorities, I think. They, although they only make up about 15.5% of the population, 22% of the fines for breaking lockdown are issued to people of that those ethnicities. Really? So they're 54% more likely oh. to be fined under coronavirus rules than white people. And a lot of this is coming from Stop and Search, which has increased in London, um, exponentially since coronavirus hit. oh because that's never been a problem there at all exactly Jeez. Um, so i just don't get like and i know i've got a very sort of simplistic mentality around it but that's because i'm not a fucking racist it should be fundamental it should be like hey don't get into fascism don't touch children don't go and rape people you know it should be like one of those those baseline reactions to life just don't be a shit person mm. <sighs> why can't you just why can't, as a population, we just get the basics nailed? Like, we're going for all of this comprehensive, enhanced sort of, you know, meditation, let's do beautiful things with our life stuff, when you haven't even got the foundations to it to not put your knee on a man's neck and make him die. It's, I don't, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but it just really, really pisses me off. Because at the moment, we're at a time where a really fucking large number of people have died through a situation we can't help and then there's assholes that should be protecting us killing off people that have done nothing wrong exactly and you know with these two reports too i'm kind of worried that one is going to influence the other so with the report about black and ethnic minority more likely to die from the coronavirus 
you know, somebody asked what should, how can we address this? And, you know, the response from the cabinet is basically, oh, well, people of those ethnicities should adhere to social distancing guidance stringently. And so I'm wondering, is that going to feed into the black and ethnic minorities being fined more because it's for their own good, quote unquote, you know what I mean? Mm. It's kind of worrying. I'm kind of conflicted with things at the moment because obviously there's a lot of protests and I completely, completely understand the, not understand because I can't, but I, I can see why people have that kind of baseline response of disgust and I need to do something now because it's just the feeling of helplessness and the feeling of disgust and everything that goes along with it but at any other time protesting would have been thousand percent the right thing to do but is it now how do you feel about that I think you know there have been peaceful protests for Mm. since the last time we had this problem in the time before that and the time before that and you know football players have been taking the knee people have been trying to peacefully protest but nobody's listening i'm not saying that i would go out and break windows and loot and riot i don't know that's that's a shitty i I have it in me well i i don't even know if i'd say that i don't i can't judge anybody (laughs) on that side of the pond who is feeling scared and feeling like they are powerless in the society that they live in just because of who they are. I can't judge their actions. I don't feel like I can. I I, absolutely can. I'm sorry, but you don't feel better by nicking a Panasonic television. It's just, (laughs) (laughs) that's not representing the kind of fight that you're facing. And I, I get people protesting. I honestly do and fucking like all to you if you want to go ahead and do that what i was trying to like i just don't understand at the moment how that can be safely done look at how much white people privileged white people in america value their commercial ties they value capitalism look how much they i mean they're willing to risk their life to get a haircut you know Mm. to get a massage they pay attention when windows break and they pay attention when people are stealing stuff and that gets them more outraged than anything. They're not outraged because a black person died. They're outraged because somebody broke a window and took a TV. That's if that's what gets their attention. You know what, what can I say? I can't condone it, but I can understand that as well. Do you know what? I'm smiling my face off now because you've just instantly, instantly made me switch on to that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you clever little bastard. <laughs> but no, what you said, it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And if you're, I read somewhere that, and I know this wasn't your response, but I read somewhere that if your response was basically, you know, I saw that earlier as well, you know, outrage that, people are looting things rather than outrage as to why it's happening then you know you've got the wrong priorities basically no yeah. I get you I just think it's I don't I'm not 100% that that would be people's motivations would be to dry to sort of draw political attention to it or whether it wasn't just to nick a fucking television but that's that's irrespective that's that's not why people have been doing this and I understand why if that was my son 
I would be tearing the universe apart to make sure that people heard his message and what what had been done to him. And that guy in his final moments asked for his mum. That's fucking heartbreaking. That's that's like <laughs> fuck all of the the looting stuff. It's just. I mean, people, there's man. always going to be opportunistic people. You saw it in the LA riots. You see mm. it in every, in the London riots. You see it in every, there's always going to be opportunistic people. And they probably, necess- they don't necessarily even care about the cause that's happening. They just use it as their excuse to loot. And I don't think we should completely link protesters and looting because it, it like I said, it could just be people that don't give a shit and they're just mm. like, well, time to loot. You know, it's not necessarily and probably not protesters actually they're too busy protesting to loot stuff aren't they you know <laughs> so i'm too busy I doing think... my protest to steal this panasonic terrorist tell you exactly and the police are too busy firing tear gas canisters in people's faces to oh, go and man. prevent businesses from being looted so people are going to take advantage of that so yeah, I do feel like the two things should be separated. We should have protesters and we should have looters and they shouldn't be mixed together. I don't think. I've got to say that I saw these fucking amazing pictures on Facebook again because um, that's where I'm living my life at the moment. <laughs> and it was of life. <laughs> living my shittest, most depressing life. <laughs> um, there was these pictures of women standing face to face against riot officers, police officers. And there was this one badass bitch doing her lipstick in the shade that was reflecting from a riot shield shield and it was just ah tingles down the spine it's like you know none of this fuck the police mentality because there are some good people and bad people in any walk of life but just the sheer front and it was it wasn't like a disgusted front it was just the balls on that woman just to turn around and say do you think you're scaring me is this the best you can do I thought, right, that's just, oh, it was the coolest thing I've seen all week. Honestly, it made me feel so much better about the shitty things that have been happening. That does sound cool. I'll have lots to find that picture and post I'll that post up. it up. That's I'll post awesome. it up. It's, yeah, they're not all bad, but the problem is the system is rotten. And mm. even, you know, they say a few bad apples. Well, to continue that, a few bad apples spoil the whole bunch. So even Absolutely. if you have good ones. If you have good ones and they're not saying anything and they're part of the system, then they might as well be bad ones, right? Yeah, it's the people that are educating them. That's why I'm so passionate about the job that I used to do, because you used to have people for a whole week. If you had some asshole with a prison warden mentality coming into work in mental health, you could fuck him off quickly in that first week. Exactly. It's about wheedling out the people with the agendas. If you just want to be there because you want the power trip and you want the dominance over other people, that's not the job that you should be doing. Exactly. And I don't care how good you are. If you're part of the bad system, then you are bad. It's just like the, with the Francis report. It's just like with what was the hospital with the Francis report? Mid Staffordshire. Yes. Thank you very much. Sorry. You, I Google. apologize to anybody who was affected by that. And because I just totally blanked on the name. I remember the situation and the whole damn report. But um, yes, it was like that. You know, that whole the whole system was terrible. There was bad staffing, poor practices. No, um, it was basically, it was just shit. And, but did the nurses that, you know, there was no excuse. Mm. 
each individual nurse could have got up there and said, well, you know, I didn't give any bad care. I was trying my best. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. They were, you know, no, it was culture and culture yeah, is toxic. Exactly. When you get yeah. culture in a place like that, and it's, I've seen it with wards and you have whole wards and they are like cesspits of bad practice. And it's not necessarily the people that have worked there. It's usually that core group of staff, the ones that have been there 15, 20 years that had these ingrained thought processes that they just poisoned anyone coming into contact them with. And it's, it's like watching a virus spread Mm. through an environment that's meant to have the caring qualities that just aren't there they're just ripped away because you have a few bad apples exactly and the people who suffer the patients yep but that kind of leads nicely on to the, the topic that we were having having to discuss for this week um, you make it sound like a chore well you know the whole serial killers thing it's kind of where i live fuck's sake you posted up the thing the other day when i was feeling like shit do you want to read a serial killer book i've got a free one <laughs> I was like, now, oh. I love true crime. I love <clears throat> reading about crime. I I like reading about, you know, the victims and their lives and mm. kind of feeling for them. I find serial killers boring. I I don't like I when I was a teenager and I was all edgy and I was <laughs> like, yeah, let's read about serial killers, cool, Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, whatever. I find them quite boring now. I'm, I'm more fascinated, I think, with crimes of passion, with family annihilators, with, with crimes that are more, I think, human. I find serial mm. killers quite inhuman because of their various psychopathies that kind of make them distant from the human race, basically. And I've got to say, anyone that does fangirl for serial killers or people that have committed horrific crimes go and work in a secure hospital go and work with people that have have done horrific things and you will see how boring and mundane their lives actually are it's it's not like there's a glittering shiny dangerous persona there's it's people and i think that's the one thing that is scary it's not necessarily what well, it is the crimes that people have committed, but it's the fact that you wouldn't be able to pin someone's forensic history on their forehead. You know, you couldn't tell who'd done what. That's the scary thing. It's not the fact that there should be this sort of glorification of what they've done. And that's not what I want to do here. And it's also not saying that people with mental health issues will go on to commit crimes or, you know, every person with schizophrenia will fucking murder someone. Cause that's not the case. That's just the media being shit. But, these people are like everyone else. It's just, they've really, really messed up somewhere and they've done something horrific, but it really irritates me when people fangirl for these people. Oh, like the people that like marry Ted Bundy and stuff. Like what oh, the hell is that? Like, no. I watched a fucking documentary and it was, I think it was, um, was it a Jeffrey Dahmer trail or something like that? But there was, there was literally like, it was like a ghost hunt but for fucking women that obviously couldn't get a shag elsewhere. So they had to go, go for this, you know, like let's, let's mock up a life where I'm going to suddenly marry a serial killer. Cause there's well, something broken in me. Cause he was very gay. So oh, fuck. I don't know. Ted Bundy is quite a popular one. It might've been, might've been. been. I thought that's just sort of switched off halfway through. Cause I thought you guys are broken. I've got no interest in watching this. They do not love <laughs> this is a car crash. <laughs> 
So we are going to talk about the life and death of Ian Brady, Ooh. one of the Moore's murderers. Um, there yes. are lots of podcasts that deal with true crime and lots of documentaries and lots of everything that you can go to find out more about the Moore's murderers and his partner, My- is it Myra? Moira? Myra? Myra Henley. Yes. Thank you. I watched two documentaries and I still didn't retain that information about how to pronounce her. <laughs> and still your name. pronunciation was shit. <laughs> yeah, well, that's me, you know. So I was just going to say, we're not going to go into depth about the actual crime because that's not our bag, baby. No. So if you would like to read about more of that, then by all means, go do a Google. Um, <laughs> just going to hit up my favorite murders. We're, we're all thinking it. Just just crack yeah, on with those ladies. They, they know do. their shit. They're far better with that shit than we are. Yeah. Or there is, oh my God, there's a great British true crime podcast that is called They Walk Among Us. Have you heard of that one? I have not. Talk more. It is, well, it's a true crime prod- podcast. Why well, can't I say podcast? Oh my God. <laughs> podcast. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Look at my podcast. Sorry. It's one guy that narrates it, and he specializes in in cases that aren't super famous. So he might not have done the Moore's murders, but he does lots and lots of great, you know, just in-depth coverage of individual crimes. The great thing about that I found about British true crime is that there's such a gag order on the press until the trial and until yep. the the sentencing so you don't find out all of the details until after it's over so it's almost like a surprise i guess not a <laughs> not a good surprise like not like a birthday. like open this box and there's a whole load of like lush presents it's hey look no, there's some horrible horrible like, gory details exactly it's like open this box there's a severed <clears throat> head like the end of that one movie that i never it's saw in the box <laughs> i know it's brad pitt that's all i know um so it's a bit more exciting i think exciting is a bad word not in a positive way it's a bit more interesting than u.s true crime where you learn every single detail about everybody involved during the like 10 week trial that's televised completely so you know everything with with British true crime, I think there's a bit more of a nuance. And that's why I like this podcast because it, it, it shows things. So anyway, they walk among us. Anyway, let's move on to our actual <laughs> topic. Now that we almost got there. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's, let's talk about this asshole. Let's talk about Ian Brady. So let's get down to it. <clears throat> the Moore's murders. Get it out there. He was a dick. Oh, was a asshole. A I just want to say. Asshole. I hated sharing his picture on my Facebook to promote this because he was such a dick. But anyway, yeah, just, just getting it out there. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Continue. Can you tell we're not fangirls? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the Moore's murders were carried out by Brady and Hinley between 1963 and October, sorry, July um, 1963 and October 1965. So in a relatively short period of time. Um, it was in and around Manchester these happened and the victims were five children. It was Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans. They were aged between 10 and 17. Fuck man. Um, at least four of whom were sexually assaulted. 
there were two victims that were discovered discovered in graves dug on Saddleworth Moor, and a third was discovered in 1987. That's more than 20 years after Brady and Hindley's trial. So Bennett's body was also thought to have been buried there, but despite repeated searches, he he was never found, and his mum died and never managed to find her little boy, which is fucked. <laughs> that was so sad. Oh. Totally used that while he was in incarcerated. He totally used that as a pawn in his weird head games. So Brady was born in Glasgow, in Scotland. Um, he was born as Ian Dunker Stewart on January the second of nineteen thirty-eight to his mum Peggy. Um, she was unmarried at the time, which must have been quite contentious for that time. And the identity of Brady's father never really got established. She sort of said he was working for a Glasgow reporting paper. Um, didn't really go into any detail about it. She had a shag. She got knocked up, basically. Um, she said that he died three months before he was born. So there was no one to corroborate that. She had really little support in respect of bringing this little boy up. Um, so she handed him to people that thought that she thought would be able to care for him better and this local couple had four children of their own brady took their name um and be and became known as ian sloan so various authors have sort of speculated on the fact that he tortured animals in his childhood there was some kind of deviance there but no one would really know if nothing's reported i think that's probably quite speculative um there was no first-hand reports there was no people that came forward that actually would have knew, known him from the time and that's a really easy one to latch on to, um, especially when you've got the kind of psychopathy that he presented with in later time. So even though he'd been objected to these kind of accusations, there wasn't any foundation. But as a teenager, he appeared twice before juvenile court for housebreaking. Um, and also he threatened his girlfriend when he was a teenager with a knife because uh, she turned up at a dance with another boy as you do i'm gonna stab you because we found out that you're going to dance with another boy fucking dickhead so he appeared before the court um this time with nine charges against him and shortly before his 17th birthday was placed on probation i just it makes me sick even reading about this guy at the moment because you know what he he turned out to be and it's really infuriating that he wasn't kept hold of during those times but i guess it was difficult for people to be able to predict when someone like that is is going to manifest this massively fucked up life but he'd he moved to manchester um with his mum and his mum had married um a guy called brady so took on his name and he was caught stealing um, from the place that he had managed to secure employment for and was sent to Strange Race for three months. Following his conviction went after he'd murdered the children, Brady was then moved to Durham Prison, where he had spent time in solitary confinement. He'd actually spent 19 years in mainstream prison before being diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And in November of 1985, he was sent to a high secure I was about to say prison. It wasn't prison. It is a hospital. Um, it was Ainsworth Psychiatric Hospital. I found it. You mean Ashworth, right? I found it. Ainsworth Ashworth. Damn. Well, I remember because Ian Brady called it Trashworth in one of his less clever word plays. I found it quite interesting that he was diagnosed after, like well after his trial, because mm. you would think nowadays they would try to diagnose that while he was on trial to determine where he would best go. So I found it 
Do you know why it took decades for him to be diagnosed or was it just, was it a sign of the times kind of thing? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, whether it's just because these things weren't really unpicked. I know that personality disorders were recognized disorders then that they didn't be- become treatable under the mental health act till relatively recently actually i think it was in the early 2000s um you couldn't technically send, section someone that had a personality disorder just for that reason because it was um classed as not being able to be treatable through medications alone um it's more intensive therapies but i digress um recently done a paper on the personality disorder that's why it's all in my head um but with per- narcissistic personality disorder, there was <laughs> the worst thing to say to somebody with a, a mental disorder. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> it's all in your head. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> uh, but with with personality disorder, especially narcissistic personality disorder, there was a lot of traits that must have fitted in with this guy. Um, it's a really severe form of personality disorder. I'm not going to say that everyone will go ahead and commit heinous crimes that has NPD. And I think possibly there's some people that we could both associate with in our lives that perhaps would have narcissistic personality disorder traits. I definitely have a couple. Uh, (laughs) But behind behind the mask of their extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticism. (sighs) Yep, that hit me right hurt. Um, <laughs> so narcissistic personality disorder, it causes problems in many areas of life, such as relationships, work, school, financial affairs. And people that have these kind of issues have an exaggerated self, self, sense of self-importance, uh, sense of entitlement, what excessive admiration. I really need to take a Valium now. This is hurting. Uh, <laughs> show us on the doll where it hurts today is the day that rachel got a new diagnosis um it'll go with all the other ones (laughs) let's add them to the canon but with people that have got npd there's also issues with (laughs) with handling criticism (laughs) such as and things like becoming impatient when you don't receive special treatment um interpersonal problems and you basically easily get slighted so beneath this facade of i'm entitled to this i am brilliant i've achieved all of this even if people have achieved fuck all there's no foundation there it's all built on nothing so perhaps people with this diagnosis or should i say perhaps ian brady fitted into this diagnosis quite well oh yeah definitely yeah so he had several interactions with forensic psychologists. There was one called Chris Crowley who had face-to-face meetings with him. And he, like Brady complained bitterly, like you said, against the conditions in, in Ashworth. And he hated it there. In 1999. In Trashworth. <laughs> <laughs> what a drama queen. Oh my God. But he, he claims in 1999 that his wrists were broken um, during restraint or well, an hour-long unprovoked attack to quote what he actually said um and brady subsequently went on hunger strike so while the law in the uk allows patients to refuse treatment those being treated under mental health disorders under the mental for mental health disorders under the mental health act would have no such right if their treatment was related to their mental disorder so that could have been deemed by clinicians that it wasn't a capacity capacity say the word for me 
you know what I'm getting at. It wasn't a decision that was made with all his faculties there, basically. His capacity? That one. In 2010, uh, two, sorry, sorry, 2012, he applied to be returned to prison, which that's really not uncommon for people that I've dealt with also within the settings that I've worked in. I remember sitting down with this one guy and he'd been sent to a medium secure hospital. Um, he was still serving a sentence, so he was on a 3741 under the Mental Health Act. And he said to me, I just want to go back to jail because at least there I know when I'm going to get out. And he was right. You know, you, you get a sentence when you're in prison, you do your sentence, you do your time, you get out. When you're sectioned under the Mental Health Act, it's down to other people that can get extended. You know, those decisions have been taken away from you. So that must have been a really, really odd power dynamic for a man that reveled in taking power from everything he could. But when he, he applied for this in a mental health tribunal, it was denied flat out because he was trying to say that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Um, so even though he wasn't in control of his crimes at the time, this was something that could be treated. But the, the doctors at Ashworth maintained that he had a personality disorder and his application was rejected. And they were saying that basically he continues to suffer from a mental disorder, which of which nature and degree at the time made it appropriate for him to be receiving treatment where he was. And he must have been pissed. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's... It's just At the same time, I feel like he was so bored. He must have been so bored in that he was in the same room for like 30 years or something. I bet you, and the thing with psychopaths, um, and I can say that because that is official diagnosis, <laughs> not just, you know, being like, oh, what a psycho. Like, no. Flagrantly use the word. Yeah. Psycho you hear it dish round all the time, don't you? It's like, oh, my psycho ex-girlfriend. It's exactly. like, no, she's not a psycho. Like, it's the fact you treated her like shit. I don't think people understand that diagnosis um, and take no. it seriously. But the thing with psychopaths is, and you see it in a lot of psychopathic killers, is that they get bored so easily. They get so bored and they're always constantly trying to up the game and give themselves different challenges. And he must have been so bored. And you see it. Throughout his time in prison, you keep seeing him pop up in the news mm. because he it's obviously always an appeal, always, um, always he a obviously feels yeah that that he's nobody's paying him enough attention basically, and yeah. so I'm going to do this thing, which is the whole thing with Keith Bennett's body. You know, I think was is it Keith Bennett? Did I get that right? Yeah. Um, that was just a game. It was just a game. I don't think he even remembered where it was. Um, no but he always acted like he did. And we'll see when I talk about his death, he even continued the games until then. So mm. there was actually a, I watched a documentary the other night and there was his mental health advocate. I think her name was Jackie. who was being interviewed on it and she was his advocate for 19 years, they were saying. And at the time she had a letter that was going to be handed to this little boy's mother which apparently gave the location as to where he was buried and she was keeping hold of this and the film crews had to let the police know that she had this letter and apparently she handed it back to Brady and it all came to nothing but the fact that he'd I don't know whether it was control over this person or whether she just made a really bad judgment call or what the judgment call would have been there because if I'd had information that may have 
helped her mother have closure on this, I think I probably would have handed that over. Well, the thing with Brady is that he was brilliant. He had an incredible intelligence. And if you read his writings, he's obviously very well read. All that Nazi literature and sadism that he read when he was a kid. Gives you all Um, the intelligence. Yeah. He was obviously had sway over Hindley. He, he was incredibly intelligent. So I can see how he could totally just turn someone around his, you know, little finger or whatever and, and do that for sure. And that was, yeah, no, that was one thing that we always told to be very mindful of working in forensic settings was maintaining those professional boundaries, mm-hmm. you know, just because someone smiling at you doesn't mean they're your friend. It's a working relationship. And while you maintain professionalism, you remember that you do nothing special for people on an individual basis because that's where those boundaries get blurred. That's where people get manipulated and that's when things get dangerous. Exactly. But I digress. Um, There was a really, really good article and it was something that I'd read a fair while while ago, actually. It was talking about the moral distress that the psychiatric nurses went through. And there was a really nice quote about the daily miracle they experienced when treating him because it must have taken a fucking miracle every day to sit and provide care for this man. And that's okay. That's, it's okay for that to be difficult and to face those moral conflicts. And the article was saying that the psychiatric nurses who cared for Brady in the high school hospital where he was, it says imprisoned, but he was cared for, um, They spoke of this daily miracle and what it took for them to put his crimes aside and ensure he was treated like every other patient. He was confined to the hospital, so Ashworth Hospital, since 85, like I said, and had the diagnosis of psychopathy. He'd spent previous 19 years in the mainstream mainstream prison and the nurses who treated him said that he refused flat out to engage with his care pathway he wouldn't speak to clinicians, he wouldn't speak to social workers, he wouldn't speak to nurses, certainly, even through the food, you know, the, the hierarchy of workers, he would not acknowledge anyone. And he, he went through the programme and was constantly placing these complaints, trying to, like you said, gain notoriety whilst in that system. And there was a nurse who worked in, in, within the hospital and they were talking about the fact that he was placing all these really small complaints, but they, know what, they knew what he was in there for. They knew the heinous crimes he, was create, he, had, he had carried out on these helpless children and what it, having to put that aside to feed him, to you know, change his bed sheets, etc. And I could wholly relate to that because I've been in that situation. And when you have someone who's murdered a child who's then complaining about the noise that's in the room next door, it makes you question what you're there for. You know, it's... I mean, I don't know whether you've ever been in the kind of position where you've had to be in a room with someone that you've known, known has done something really bad, but it's really difficult to put that aside to be able to get on with what's in front of you. But the fact that these nurses managed to do this was amazing. Um, he even went on hunger strike, like we, like, like I said from the earlier article, and he he wanted to die, which is something you'll probably speak about in a bit. 
but the the daily miracle that happened there was because people provided the same quality of care as they did everyone else even though this man was reportedly dominating the ward and was more difficult to care for than every other person on the ward there was a clear divide in the way that the there was public expectation that you wouldn't let him escape and the fact that everyone saw him as a criminal but they also had to see him as a patient and they had to watch his every move from sleeping going to the bathroom but they were offering skilled care at the same time Mm. so it's not even like it's not like you're a prison warder it's not like you're doing your checks because you have to to keep this person safe it's you're providing engaged care at the same time. You're treating this person like you treat your family member, even though they've gone out and committed horrific crimes. You're treating them as you would want to be treated. And that's where I think the beauty in that job comes. And I said to you, I think in the last episode, was the fact you shouldn't be able to tell anyone's personal thoughts through the way that care is being provided. It should be consistent for everyone. And it's it's a fucking tough thing to do sometimes. Um, I read a I actually read an article relating to that in the Lancet about um, nurses and doctors treating terrorists. Yes, um, yeah. especially in the context of treating terrorists alongside their victims. Yeah, and their conclusion was pretty much, although it's incredibly difficult for medical staff, and it can be just a huge emotional stress to have to care for somebody who's done horrible things Mm. you still can't be judgmental because your role is not to punish they're already in prison they're already in a secure unit they are being punished by the by the justice system your role is to preserve life restore health um i think the thing that you've got to remember in that role is the fact unless you are a you know criminal psychologist unless you're a forensic psychologist you are not there to discuss to to make that judgment whether that person is mad or bad it's as simple as that you're there to provide that person care and it's not to say that you don't have your own internal monologue going on or you have your own ideas because I don't think anyone would like nursing someone that has committed a horrible crime because there's going to be emotional connotations attached to that you're you know, you're going to feel for the victim. But some people have been incredibly unwell when they've committed their index offences. Some could be tortured by the fact that they've done this when unwell. And when they've become well, they're just as outraged as anyone else would be by hearing it. This certainly wasn't the case for Brady. I'm not trying to give him any kind of compassion legway there. But he he actually never apologized for his crimes. He referred to his murders as happenings, I think, which made me just how detached he was. He obviously viewed his victims as just nothing. When he got arrested, when he got charged, it was nothing to him. I think he described it as an existential experiment Mm. at some point as well. I was like, honestly, you couldn't hope for anyone more conceited. It was just this little average mediocre motherfucker that decided to do something horrific to gain notoriety and the fact that he could draw one woman into his world so much that he felt like he could gain that adoration and that he had to take it out on people that were vulnerable 
Did you know frankly. he wrote a book when he was oh uh, yeah incarcerated about other murderers, but he never referred to his own crimes because he was, of course, an expert on murderers at this time. Oh, clearly. Sorry, Brady. Where did you take your forensic psychology fucking degree from? Oh, was it in the factory you worked in? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I've cared for... I can't say that I've cared for anyone. I've not been on a secure unit or worked in a, you know, had placement in prison or anything like some people I know. Mm. Um, I've had to care for people who are, of course, as many healthcare professionals have, people that are screaming at me, that are violent, um, whether, you know, probably due to dementia or the medication they're on or pain or what have you. I've had to care for people who I've heard made horrible racist remarks, people that you wouldn't want to know normally, you know, it's, it's still a challenge. It's not the same as caring for somebody who's, for example, with Brady raped and killed children. I can't even imagine, but at the same time, I think it's probably do it. It's testament to who you are as a person and your professionalism when you can treat people that have done horrific things like every other person. Exactly. And when I first started working, well, not when I first started working, but when I first had my first interaction with someone that had done something pretty fucking horrific, um, and I was talking to the charge nurse about sort of what their, their index offence was, and she, she divulged that to me, because, you know, you need to know in those kind of settings because of risks. And it's not like, you know, in everyday life, you'd build up a picture of someone, then perhaps you'd find out about their life. It's smacking your face straight when you get there, because you need to know. And found out what this gentleman had done. And then she, she went and she did a care plan with him. And they sat down, they had a cup of tea. Um, she went through all of his rights with him, discussed what had helped him previously, how he'd been treated previously, how that affected him, what his likes and dislikes were, what his preference would be when it comes to his care path or in the future. And this woman just, I'd, I sat back and it was, if you didn't know what he'd done, she would just be speaking to anyone. And it was beautiful. It, it was just, that is what nursing is about. You've got to think about all the people that you've cared for who might be complete assholes that have done horrible things and you didn't know. Mm. You know? So you just, I think it helps to compartmentalize. You know, I don't care. I care about what you've done, but I don't care that you've done it specifically. I just, my job is to, whatever your job is at, on that ward that day. My job mm-hmm. is to your blood pressure and record it on your care plan and go and be professional. And it's hard. And the, we cannot discount the emotional stress it causes on healthcare workers. No. And I think that's one, one moment where talking to your colleagues and talking to the people that you work with is really, really important. We used to do supervision quite regularly. And having the opportunity to discuss your disgust or your ill feeling towards this person, it's, that's completely natural. That's human. You're, you're allowed to feel disgust. You're allowed to feel enraged by something that someone has done that's bad. Because why wouldn't you? That's, that's part of being human. That's part of having compassion. But through those processes, you can put your own preconceptions aside so you can 
still deliver care because that's what you're there for at the end of the day. Precisely. So I'm going to talk about the death of Ian Brady. Unfortunately, we still have to talk about this guy. But it's the good bit, really, isn't it? It is the good bit where he dies. No, it's not. I don't celebrate anybody's death. I celebrate the fact that I was never his nurse and had to care for him. There we Mm. go. So Brady, as you mentioned, he tried to get himself transferred over to a to a prison in Scotland. He'd been in this secure hospital being force fed. So he had a nasogastric tube inserted, um, which was according to him against his will. But of course, according to the physicians, it was in his best interest. Um, so he tried to get secure a transfer to a prison in Scotland um, in 2013. And this is often in the press called his right to die trial. So a hearing to determine his right to die. And when you actually read into it, it's not so much a right to die case. First of all, in this country, nobody has the right to die. There is no physician assisted um, suicide or whatever your favorite terminology for that is. You ain't gonna get that over here. (laughs) No. And it's a bit misleading because at the time Brady was not on end of life. He was not um, receiving palliative care and he wasn't trying to campaign to get his feeding tube out. He was trying to campaign to go to Gen Pop in prison so he could die there. So he wouldn't have to have his feeding tube there. So it's a, it's a bit different. Um, He said, he's quoted as saying, I have had enough. My objective is to die and release myself from this once and for all. I am not interested in being kept alive artificially by force feeding. My death strike is rational and pragmatic. I am eager to leave this cesspit in a coffin. So <sighs> dramatics again. But even like he would have known that he, if he got put into general population, someone would have seen him as a prize because oh, he, knew. he wanted to die. He knew that he said, Motherfucker. He, he quoted as saying that he hoped that somebody would target him and the end would be quick. He, he believed if he was moved to Scotland, he would either get killed or starve to death because nobody would make him have a feeding tube there. So, and he was actually, he, sh- he suffered a seizure. Um, I think the year before, and had been resuscitated against his wishes, according to him. So that was, that was actually a little bit where the um, I was speaking about Jackie, the advocate in the documentary. You'll see in this documentary dubbed by BBC if you, if you choose to watch it. And she receives a phone call actually as he'd received that seizure. And it was really interesting to chart that along as well and her reactions because she actually seemed really, really upset by that. So, mm. yeah, it's interesting. Sorry, carry on. It's all right. The I didn't see that one. Um, I watched a one on BBC Alba that was in Scottish Gaelic. So in a normal in a normal case, say, you know, if this wasn't Ian Brady, basically doctors are making decisions to keep that feeding tube in under the Mental Capacity Act and working within the patient's best interest. So they have to ask themselves, does this feeding tube cause more benefit than harm? And also you have to consider if I withdraw the feeding tube, is that only to cause death or is it to stop, you know, for example, at the, on the end of life, we might take out a feeding tube because the body can't just, it just can't process the nutrition anymore. So you mm. get a fluid overload. Basically the doctor can't do anything with the aim of causing death 
in this country. But if death is an unintended side effect of their actions, then it's considered justifiable in the Mm. court of law. But like I said, this whole quote unquote right to die trial that Brady did, that was not really a thing. So, and it, it very rightly got, he got refused and he had to stay in Ashworth, Trashworth, I'll say. <laughs> he sounds like Donald Trump, doesn't he? It's like fake news, Trashworth, like. Ugh, just anything. I swear. It's speaking of another psychopath. <laughs> oh, could you yeah. imagine Ian Brady's Twitter account? Oh my Endless God. Endless so fucking blast. self-inflated I'm waffle. So it was not invented. Um, so let's talk about his actual death which occurred in 2016 or sorry 2017 um but in 2016 brady wrote to a channel 5 journalist claiming he was dying from a terminal lung and chest condition so brady smoked like a chimney he actually one of his hunger strikes or complaints was about um the stopping of smoking in his hospital i think <laughs> I know it was a dodgy time to work in psychiatric care. I can assure you. (laughs) (laughs) you Staff and patients. Exactly. Can you imagine being the nurse on duty the next day? I actually was on. I no, I went. I was shift when that actually started in the psychiatric intensive care unit. And everybody everybody got real twitchy, right? It was a dark day. That was not a good shift. Sorry. Carry on. So in 2017, Brady's lawyers said that their client had been bedridden for several years after a fall in which he'd broken his hip and described him as terminally ill. He actually, his mental health advocate, which might be the woman that you were talking about earlier, um, claimed Mm. in 2014 that he had been showing signs of dementia. So whether or not that was true, I'm sure that really pissed him off. I think he dismissed her actually after she said that. Really? Um, yeah. And so in 2017, he was receiving constant oxygen and a nebulizer four times a day. So, okay. By February, 2017, medics had started end of life care. Um, and he was able to give orders that he did not want to be resuscitated. So they said he is gravely ill and everyone there is prepared for him dying. He's receiving 24 seven treatment from nurses specializing in assistant, assisting patients with terminal cancer. So he did have lung cancer. Despite who he is and what he has done, they are being professional and trying to make him as comfortable as possible. His decline accelerated five days before his death, and he removed the tube, um, in his nasogastric tube, and refused a replacement. And this time, they did not replace it. So you can tell when he's actually, when he's, when he's actually put on end of life, he can make those decisions then. Mm. Um, he does have the capacity in that sense to, to, cause once, once he's kind of switched over to palliative care, you know, putting in the tube, the palliative nurses would recognize that would cause more harm than benefit at this point in the process. Um, I guess you you sort of, your category as a patient has changed. You're, you're not, no longer prioritized under the mental health act because your physical health has taken such precedence. Is that, is exactly. that kind of, yeah. And if he's considered, if they think he's going to die within the next, you know, days, weeks, they have to think, well, is that, is putting him through the stress of getting that tube in even going to help him or is it better to, is it better? It is in his interests more to leave it. So even if they're still doing a best interest thing, and they don't think he has capacity, then they might have judged his best interests have changed at this point. 
Mm. So on 12th May, staff noted increasing breathlessness and agitation as his intake of fluid and nutrition all but ended. By May 15th, they realized he was entering the final hours or days of his life. Brady declined chaplaincy, surprise, surprise, and asked for his solicitor to be notified. He also requested that his locked briefcases be removed from his room. So Why that's kind of loud locked briefcases. I don't know. Um, fuck? I guess patient property. I mean, just because no. You're, no, 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 no. Well, I think a lot of people were hoping that that would they they would contain something pertinent to finding Keith Bennett's body. Um, and I think even even as he's laying in his bed dying, I think he is still trying to. It was all a game for him. I think he's still trying to pull the strings. He was, he, I think he felt he was losing control as he got older. I think the reason why he wanted to die, of course, I don't think he ever would have killed himself because I don't think psychopaths can kill themselves personally. He's way too narcissistic. I think it's um, the relationship he had with control, wasn't he? Yeah. And, it, and I it think was... he saw his body decline. He saw himself getting frailer and that must have been the biggest punishment for him. He was never, he was never, no matter how long you kept him locked up, he was never going to feel guilty about his murders. Never. He couldn't, he didn't, he lacked the capacity to feel guilty. But I think watching himself fall into ill health and decline, I think was probably the best punishment that he could have had personally. Mm, Absolutely. So uh, on May 15th, 2017, Brady died age 79 in room 35 of Newland Ward at Ashworth Hospital, where he'd spent the previous 32 years. A, post, a post-mortem concluded that he, he, he was currently being treated with 19 different drugs. Um, he died of heart failure caused by severe lung disease. At the time of his death, Brady weighed 61 kilos. I'm American, and I don't know what that means. Um <laughs> He had a body. I'm pretty mass- sure I don't even know what that means. <laughs> 61 kilos. How much do I weigh? I don't remember. Um, it's like a a, body- I fit in. Well, I swear I'm three times that. Three times? Maybe I'm just being down on myself so I'm a bit depressed. I don't fucking know. You started exercising, girl. You're fine. Thanks, babe. 61 kilos and pounds. That's 134 pounds. Um, I'm currently. I'm like 127, so I guess he was really tall, but his BMI was 20, so that's quite Shit. low. Yeah. I mean, I've seen pictures of him when he was on the documentaries. He looked like a skeleton. He looked like a husk mm-hmm. of a man. And that, it intrigues me in a way because you look at, he, and he looked a breath away from death, but just the processing behind that mind, behind the eyes, mm. and these things that he was doing, all of these complaints, these legal processes going through, the cognition was still there. That hadn't changed. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a bit fucking scary. It is. It is. Um, the coroner ruled out neglect and self-neglect as contributing factors to his death. He also refused to release the body um, until he was given assurances that Brady's ashes would not be spread on Saddleworth Moor. Uh, where the, his victims were found, which was Brady's 
one of Brady's last wishes, actually, Ugh, which is totally fucked up. I know. How can you even request that and think that's in any way okay or that it's going to happen? I remember um, reading about that in the news because the, and I remember thinking about the coroner, good fucking on you, because there must have been all of these people trying to claim this, this monster, this, this person's last moments there must have been people queuing up disgustingly to actually carry that out for him Mm -hmm. probably i know it's gross you see it's a huge thing and hell it could contribute to a whole nother podcast but what we do what do you do with the body or the remains of murderers of terrorists of you know you you hear about funeral homes not wanting to accept bodies in mm. fact, when Hindley died, um, I think she died in 2002 in prison mm. and funeral homes all around would not take her body. She had to be sent far, far away to somebody who finally would. Um, and I think that kind of is similar to giving health care to somebody who's done something horrible, giving f- death care, funeral care to somebody who's done something horrible, I think is also a service that is incredible that somebody can do that you know mm. but it's i think we we're having this discussion before with my my group the gra- graveyard gardeners we but you know we find out we adopt a grave and we find out about the, the person that's passed away um but what if we found out something really fucking heinous what if we found out that someone was a child murderer or you know a rapist or something would we still tend for that person's grave and i was like well, yeah, of course we would, because it's testament to what we're doing as a group and who we are as people. It's not about these fucking assholes that have done something horrible. It's about showing that we, we as a society and we as humans are better because we see beyond their, their attempt to dehumanize. Mm. Because it's these offenses, they dehumanize people. They take away people, people's rights. And I think the only way that you claim those back is by showing how human you actually are. And maybe their pretty grave covered in flowers, making somebody happy when they look at it is the best thing that they've ever done and could ever do in their Mm. life and after. So totally. I was after reading about all of this, I was wondering about end of life care in prisons and how that's performed and kind of the challenges. And of course, Brady was at a secure psychiatric hospital, so it's a bit different, but we currently have a prison population that is aging. We have more 60 plus sort of people going into prison than ever before. And there's a lot of talk about delivering palliative care in a prison environment. How would you even go about that? That's that's really not something that I've had much interaction with. It's difficult. There are lots of challenges um, when you're looking at end-of-life care in prison. Of course, you have the prison environment, first of all, which is designed for security and safety, which mm. just always, it's not compatible with an end-of-life environment, um, you know, where people want to die. You have offenders who don't, who mistrust uh, the healthcare staff in the prison, assuming that they're not looking out for their best interest. Will this person take care of me when I'm dying? Will they give me the right pain medication or do they not care? Do they think I'm a horrible monster and they, they're not going to help me. You have the power imbalance between people providing care and 
the prisoners that you don't see in the outside world. So there's quite a few challenges. You have limited involvement in advanced care planning and your family may or may not be able to be involved in care as they would on the outside. So I think that's another thing as well is the family members. When, when someone that has done a shitty thing passes away, how, how do those family members deal with it as well? Because they've got to process a loss and the fact that someone that they probably still care about to some degree or another has passed away. Even if society is happy that person's dead, how would they process it? Normally, family participating in end-of-life care uh, rituals, in helping to plan and helping to deliver the care, that can be kind of working the grief out. But when you have somebody that's locked away, that's not going to necessarily happen. There's So there's a lot of challenges. And the media, frankly, doesn't help because they sensationalize these crimes. They sensationalize prisoners. All you hear about is, you know, how cushy prisoners have it or how the system's failing everybody. And people don't want to have these conversations and they can't have these conversations about giving good palliative care because the public who've been hearing all these things from the media, they don't want to hear it. They don't think people like that are deserving of a good death, you know people it's hard to talk about best practice when people assume that there doesn't need to be a practice you know what i mean the thing is it's sort of like the community rough justice but it can't be one rule for one one rule for another if you've got a duty of care it can't just be to the good people it can't just be towards the people that participate in society and are good citizens it's got to be for everyone even the shit people exactly no matter what someone's background is what they've done at the end of their life they deserve a level of care and dignity Um, they and their families should get the same support that others get it's just a to me it's a fundamental right you know you don't lock someone in prison and not feed them for example well Mm. to me you don't lock someone away and then not give them good palliative care i think the end of the line is like if you it's it's all well and good to have your internal thoughts to have that dialogue going on as long as you're not vocalizing that but if you're treating someone that's if you're treating someone any differently on the basis that they've done something bad to someone else it's making you just as bad as them if you don't provide consistent care and it must be really difficult you know i've i've worked with people that they've really massively objected to being anywhere near someone that's done something horrific but I remember speaking in an office with a lady and she, she flat out refused to work shift. And I said to her, you are buying in to the horror that this person wants to create. And this person's crimes are historic. They're, they were 40 years ago in this particular case. But you're empowering him. You're empowering him to still have that notoriety. And if he is getting this kind of effect on you, it's like he's living through his index offence all over again. Don't give him that power. Exactly. And you, like I said earlier, you are not there to deliver justice. That has already been done. You're there to basically deliver compassionate care to everybody. So there's lots of talk about compassionate release, um, which in the UK now 
you can get compassionate release from prison if you're expected to die within the next three months. However, timeliness of applications has made it difficult to sort of time that correctly. And there are people who have been released who died literally the next day. So they haven't had any time to get where they want to be and get in a position where they can die comfortably. And there are people who have actually been released that have gone on to live for like another year. And that's kind of a bit embarrassing for, you know, for everybody involved. Cause it's like, do you then bring them back? Like, congratulations on not dying. Please come back to prison now. (laughs) They're talking about installing more sort of palliative care facilities and services within prisons, which I think is a great idea. Cause you have, you know, when you, when you're talking end of life, you have the right to, correct and adequate pain relief you have to think about the use of restraints so if people are getting transferred to other hospitals you know they're getting these heavy restraints put on them it's difficult Mm. sometimes to do an accurate risk assessment based on somebody's health and there's not enough planning so if we have a specialist who can come and deliver this in prisons then yeah great good it's it's kind of unfair, I think, to, to assume that everybody who comes to work for a prison will be able to do end-of-life care. For example, you'll, have, you'll just have guards that will have to kind of not deliver the care, obviously, but know, know about it, know how to, how to react and how to, how to treat prisoners that are kind of dying. See, that's one thing. I, I wouldn't have the first fucking idea what I was doing there because that's not something that I'd encountered before. And it just seems like two different worlds colliding. Well, exactly. It'd be Nobody amazing goes... if you could see that done properly. Mm, nobody goes into, I don't think people apply to be guards thinking that maybe one day I'll help a prisoner on his journey to die or what have you. Mm. Um, I actually read a great article about, Um, I didn't actually write down any notes, so I might get it completely wrong, but there's a prison in the U S that's actually uses other prisoners and has trained them into kind of an end of life program. So when their fellow prisoners are dying, they can be there and help deliver care and talk to them and be there when they die, which is to me, it's incredible. And that's, that's what, you know, it's so people don't die alone, you know, and it's, it's really great um that's really lovely I I like that a lot it is so bringing it back to Ian Brady um I don't know if he died alone it doesn't say in any of the articles I don't know it was expected it wasn't unexpected so it's very possible that someone was in the room with him it's very possible someone was holding his hand Mm. he was being provided cared for by good nurses and And I think that should be the person that we focus on in that in this story is the nurse that was there because I don't think we'd ever know who she was because there would have been someone in the room with him when he died because there would have had to be someone men can be nurses too hashtag he or she sorry he or she whatever (laughs) um but there would have been someone in that room when he passed away and that is the person we're speaking about today this is what it's all based on we is that your dog in the background it is I'm sorry. Is he objecting to Ian Brady? <laughs> yeah. Even the um, dogs don't like him. I was like, fuck you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So in conclusion, fuck Ian Brady. He's a dick. But kudos to every nurse 
and healthcare professional that cared for him and the ones whoever the ones that were there at the end of his life giving him great palliative care despite his crimes and despite his total utter psychopathy and jerkness that's a official healthcare term um (laughs) kudos to you and may we all be able to have your strength your composure and your compassion when we ourselves deal with clients uh patients service users that have done horrible terrible things oh man that's taken it out of me it is so is it time for some tough questions then i haven't thought of a tough question so you should probably chuck your tough question at me and i'll think on my feet okay Do you find it difficult when talking with your friends, when they're mentioning, or your family, when they're talking about their problems and the shit that's going on, do you find it difficult not to diagnose them (laughs) with all kinds of mental illnesses? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's about whether you vocalize that or not. Have you diagnosed me with anything? Uh... If you chose to come to me at some point to discuss issues that you felt were present in your life, then whether I'd had that discussion in my own head at some point would be irrelevant because that would be your place to have that discussion. (laughs) You sound like you're dancing a little bit around that answer. Yeah, I am. But I did it well. I did it fluidly. What's wrong with me? (laughs) (laughs) Diagnose me. (laughs) well as we know nurses cannot diagnose no no and especially people that they're not treating at the time you can diagnose in your head all the time yeah and the fact that i'm 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 not trying to be a nurse i'm trying to be a manager as well managers definitely can't diagnose you um but yeah no i think you do i think there's you know whether you see traits in people or whether you look at someone's behavior and go "Mm, i wonder whether a bit mm," or a bit maybe that um it's even worse when you're doing it with your partner though because (laughs) oh god it's worse than bloody astrology isn't it it's like (laughs) it's like can a can your mood is definitely in retrograde (laughs) (laughs) can a manic depressive and a person with a schizoid personality be compatible let's find out (laughs) um yeah well i've played that one out a couple of times It's the same Uh, when you're, you know, when I'm studying and I'm reading about a certain condition, I automatically have that condition. Oh, (laughs) don't. Are you like a web doctor? Yeah. Do I have COPD? I fit like, I don't know. I breathe heavy sometimes. Like, oh God. Like Like you're telling me that I was breathing heavily down the microphone before we started like a creepy old pervert. (laughs) Thanks. Anyway, what's your question? Have you thought of one? Um... Yeah, I have actually. Do you ever talk to your child about death? All the time. No, not all the time. That sounds weird. (laughs) Morning, sweetheart. You're going to die one day. (laughs) We have very open, and she knows what I do. She knows I do the death cafe. Um, So, and she's always desperate to go to one, actually. And I have to tell her they're not for kids. Um, yeah, we have open and honest discussions about death. I already know. I know what she wants for her funeral. She wants to be mummified. 
like an Egyptian. She wants to be wrapped in gold and which is pretty incredible love the fact she's gone for nothing cheap no no oh no if i could build her a massive pyramid she probably would be very happy with that bring me my shrine and mold me hard meanwhile i'm like bury me in the cold dirt wrapped only in a shroud and she's like (laughs) she's adorn me with all of your fineries exactly some frankincense and myrrh right there um she sometimes i feel like i'm too honest with her um you know, cause we'll be talking about stuff and she might say something like, because it's scary, it's scary for everyone, but especially sometimes with kids, cause they don't, you know, they're still processing this stuff and she'll say something like, well, at least only old people die and kids don't die. And I'll be like, well, actually well... <laughs> sometimes kids do die, unfortunately. And she's like, oh, oh <laughs> fuck. Like, oh, maybe I was a bit too honest. <laughs> it's about you know, you should talk to kids about death, about grief. It's about be talking to them at the level that they're, that you think they can handle. It's about being quiet and letting them ask questions. And then based on their questions, you can figure out what, what they can handle, but you should never lie. You should never mislead or use euphemisms. You should be very direct. Just like when you talk about sex with kids when they're older, I'm not talking about sex with her yet. We've had lots of talks about death, but never about sex. So, <laughs> so it's been lovely talking with you. And we ha- I feel like we've talked about some really serious stuff. Um, and thank and- you for this. You've actually cheered me up a little bit. Like, not, not the whole talking about Ian Brady thing, but yeah. You heard it here first, folks. Talking about Ian Brady cheers Rachel up. So next <sighs> time you're here and she's upset, just talk about your favorite serial murderer of children and she will she will brighten up <laughs> that's something broken inside me isn't it <laughs> anyway uh, I, think, I think we've had a good chat about moral duties about all kinds of stuff and i think it's a great time to wrap and we will see you all next week with a brand new topic Hey guys, uh, we love talking to you on the Life Until Death podcast, but we'd also love to hear from you too. Communication is a two-way street. So if you've got any tough questions that you want us to ask each other and make us feel uncomfortable, please send them in. Anything to do with mental health or death um, or whatever, really. Nothing Uh, about sex lives or anything like that, guys, because my mom listens to this and she'll kick your ass online. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Don't be gross. Um, (laughs) If you have any other uh comments questions or criticisms about the things that we've talked about or if there's something you really really desperately want us to talk about please please tell us on our facebook page send us an email you know however you want to get in contact with us please do so because we would love to hear from you thanks